we're going to talk specifically about some of the things we've been discussing today. And that is what's really happening right now with, uh, with integralism and as well with what you call Christian nationalism. But I wanted to quickly just get, especially after John Benzinger's uh, last presentation, I want to ask James if you could give everybody an understanding of what entryism now is. What is entryism? Yeah, that does segue off of uh, John's talk very well because he said we're being infiltrated. So there's actually a concept in communist activism that's called entryism, or sometimes it's called entrism. So it's the idea of entering into something. It's a, it's a project of entering into an institution and infiltrating it and taking it over. And so you can look it up and read about it if you want. Entryism is a kind of strange word, but the idea is that what you want to do to infiltrate is you want to, you have to figure out how to get rid of the good people and put bad people in. So maybe you run a big campaign like defund the police. And you think, well, that's crazy. We've got to have police. Let me tell you a secret. They know we have to have police. But what they have to do is they have to make policing intolerable for good cops. So good cops will leave the police force, and then all of a sudden, you remember what Mike talked about this morning, problem, reaction, solution. So now we have a problem. Policing is a problem, so we're going to defund police. And then there's a reaction. Oh, no, we don't have any police, and there's shoplifting everywhere. And the solution is, well, we're going to hire a bunch of new police. But in the meantime, not only have you got rid of the good cops and the experienced cops and the cops that could be mentors, but you've also installed a DEI policy so that you only hire ideologically conforming new police officers. And so that's how you can actually enter into an institution and transform it. You can do that in any institution. I gave the example of the police because that's something we all saw and we all understood. But this happens in, in, in university departments. And it would happen the same way in a church. If it happens in the university one way, it happens the exact same way in churches. And so what they do in a university department is they'll start off, they'll have, a, say, a physics department. Oh, it's physics. That can't go woke. That's physics, right? And what they'll say is, well, we've got a real problem with sexism or racism here in the department. It's not the physics that's the problem. It's the people. We don't have enough women you know, a racial minority tried to get tenure and they got denied tenure or they didn't like the department and left. They must have got chased out by racism. They complained about it. So we've got a real problem with sexism or racism or homophobia or transphobia. And you'll hear these same things in the church. You have a problem with racism or homophobia, patriarchy, something in the church. And so what we really need to do is put the pastor, if it's a church or the department head or the department itself through a struggle session, make them realize the importance of bringing some different kind of people in for diversity and be a more inclusive department or more inclusive church. And you get a couple of people in and those people are going to be ideologically conforming. And then the same process is going to happen again next year. And then the same process is going to happen again next year. And sooner or later, you get about 50% of them, or 51% maybe, of the people in leadership have this new view. And then they just flip the whole thing over, and now the physics department is woke, or the church is woke, or whatever else. This is another form of entryism. It doesn't have to rely on defunding or whatever. You saw the same thing, for example, in our military. Hey, everybody, everybody, you got to get the shot. Everybody who follows orders does whatever they said. They stay in. Everybody else they get kicked out or they leave. So guess what? Oh no, we don't have enough soldiers. Well, who are they gonna bring in? They're gonna bring in a new batch of recruits that match only the things that they've been advertising to. And what are the advertisements for the military looking like lately? Well, literally gay cartoons. So, I mean, literally that's not a joke or an exaggeration. So they bring in a whole new military force that we know is gonna be compliant to that side of thinking. They know that the US Marine Corps, for example, was not likely to be woke, mm. but now they have a new Marine Corps they're building out. That's entryism. Uh, Dr. Connell, you have had a lot of experience and you've seen a lot of things over the past um, 40 years in ministry. Um, you were talking about how we had uh, an old good old boys club that was just basically replaced with a new good old boys club. Can you just give us a little more understanding of what that actually was? Well, in order to gain power, you have to keep a stabilized structure of leadership. And so in order to keep that structure pure, you have to make sure that you bring in people who are like-minded. Right. And people who are like-minded are part of the boys club. And so, for instance, with the Southern Baptist Convention, for years, 
Uh, you would hear the same speakers. For years, you would hear the same themes. For years, it's just blah, 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 same, 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 same. And with the pastor's conference, look, I just quit going because it was never did they bring in anyone outside the circle, if you understand what I'm saying. So if you want to consolidate power, you create a small group of leaders that think like you do, and then they they uh, act kind of like the tortoise in Roman soldiering, uh, where they just block out everything that might be against them, and they just keep going forward doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. So it's always the same guys, same thought, uh, and eventually, I think a lot of people just got tired of it. Mm. So would it be kind of like um, if you wanted to be able to excel or to, to have a step up in ministry or within the convention itself, you had to conform to what the group said that you, in terms of what they've all agreed is the standard? Well, well absolutely. Right. Uh, because they really don't want someone who I would call an independent thinker coming in and asking the kinds of questions that a lot of people would like to ask. This is one thing about James is he will ask the questions, right? You know, he, he will not just settle for the status quo. Well, let's talk about that. And when it comes to Christian nationalism, well, whose Christianity is it going to be? And how are you going to choose the leaders? And what about the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you call them Christian? And what about the Mormons and what about, and, and so you get this whole conglomerate uh, and, and actually it is very hard to put together, but once you put it together, it stays consolidated. Mm. Uh, what they don't want is somebody coming in and saying, well, what about, and then going, right. going on with a question. Right. Uh, Dr. Rich, how have you seen that in the seminary structure in terms of the hierarchy within seminaries. I know you've been involved with several different seminaries. I think you're at Veritas right now, correct? correct. But I don't, I don't want to necessarily dump on any one, but it seems like that's been something that's been cons consistent as well. Yeah, I've seen it in a variety of ways. You know, I think one of the first times I saw the transfer of power within the convention itself was under the banner of the Great Commission resurgence that took place within the Southern Baptist Convention. Sounds great. We're all for the Great Commission. We're all for putting our funds for the Great Commission. But what they did is they fundamentally reallocated the way funds are distributed in the convention to convention leaders and the entity heads that have taken place. So at that point, they're the ones who are trying to push which funds and which ideologies get those funds to take place. That was step one. Step two was, is once the entity heads have the ability to make those decisions about their funds, all under the guise of the Great Commission resurgence, mm -hmm. then they started to bring in diversity, equity, and inclusion ideology. But notice, the first one was sort of wrapped in theological language, the Great Commission. The next one was wrapped in the language of kingdom diversity, because you can't just have diversity. It's got to be kingdom diversity. And it initially started out as a program of, you know, we want to see all people represented. We want to be a Revelation 5 group. We want to see the nations reached for Christ. And that preaches in a Southern Baptist church. It really does. And for the average person, they're going to say, I have no problem with that. All the while, they are putting in programs for certain percentages of people that have to be hired for minority representations. They're putting in particular representations for gender representations. They're putting in sexual representations within the different institutions. And then they had to get enough students on campus to actually believe it. So they started putting in scholarships for kingdom diversity scholarships. And now they've come to the point where they are so far into this because now the entity heads have the money, so they're calling the financial shots. They got enough people in ideologically into these positions, and much like you were saying, it was pure entryism. But it started out with allocating funds into a particular head. So the hirings have gone that direction, the firings have gone that direction, and ideology has created a place now specifically within Southern Baptists where you know, there was a group of people generations ago, they weren't getting jobs because they didn't have a college degree. Now you have people 
who aren't getting jobs in seminaries for the simple fact that they're white, all because of this ideology. Okay, awesome. I think your mic just went dead, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think we picked it up, uh, hopefully through general equity or something. <laughs> um, Pastor Woodard, what have you seen, and we've been talking about Christian nationalism, is there a sense that all of a sudden, just within the last year and a half, because that's really all it's been, that you've had this sudden rise of people that we really weren't familiar with before that came into the community, and then all of a sudden, we all had to basically get in line, or else you'd have a struggle session. Would, would that be accurate to say it that way? Yeah, um, it's been a combination of two things. One is um, existing leaders or people that we um, have been observing or interacting with um, online. They've got podcasts and you know watching them through the last several years, and then they've suddenly become these radicalized Christian nationalists. Uh, and then there's also new leaders that have appeared out of nowhere um, with funding that has also appeared out of nowhere and platforms and then sort of risen from zero followers to 20,000 followers in a very short period of time. And uh, suddenly they're the leaders of this movement. And uh, it, it's just that in and of itself is very suspicious, plus the actual backgrounds of these people, many of which funnel through Washington, D.C. and the government. And you're like, wait, are you... I know you were a Fed, but are you still a Fed? Um, these kind of issues. Um, so that, that's what I'm seeing. Um, mm. I don't know if that's... Well, oh. yeah, um, I think that the, one of the issues is that I would say that we had a very united group just two years ago or so um, of people that I think as John was addressing that, you know, like with everyone on right now on the altar, is that we have a lot of different peculiarities in terms of our own theological stances that are probably different than each other, eschatology and so forth and that kind of thing. Um, but we were united in this cause and we weren't fighting each other because we knew what had to be defeated. But then all of a sudden, we were all fighting it. We, we had to be in line with this new movement or else you would get bullied, basically. And I, I think, you know, James had said to me before, is like, these guys are worse than the woke were, you know, over the past three or four years. Um, is there a sense that that has happened as well in, and I want to go to John real quick. Um, John, have you seen that both uh, in your area in Phoenix as well as in, as well, this, the seminary and theological education realm as well? Yeah, so... Um First, the first place I saw it was in the college that I went to that my, uh, I had a main professor who all of his doctrinal beliefs aligned with the denomination that the school was a part of. And he um, would have us memorize that doctrinal statement and we would, we would have to recite it in, on, our, on our final exam. That's how much he believed in it. Um, his colleagues said they believed it, but didn't. And I remember one of them, I, I was talking to him, he was, he was very pro-postmodernism. So the hermeneutics class was reader-response criticism. So hermeneutics 101 is reader-response criticism. Um, one of my pastoral counseling classes, um, Bible's not sufficient, all of that. And then I'm talking to that same, that same counseling professor and I'm, I'm wanting to study postmodernism because I'm, I'm thinking I need to understand this. I want to get a master's degree in this. I want to be a pastor, but I need to understand my culture and the Bible. So I want to go down this road. And he starts telling me about the schools I should go to. And I'm sitting there going, I know all these schools are radically pro-postmodern. Like I want to know how to fight it. I don't want to believe it. And, um, and I, 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 as, as I'm talking to him, I said, well, well, how do you sign the doctrinal statement here? And he takes out his pen and he goes, like this. <laughs> and so that's the first place I saw it. Well, that professor, I became the, the, the solid professor, I became very good friends with him. And he told me that he was, he was brought up on, on, it's not heresy, but he was brought up by all of his, his faculty members and the department head went after him for believing and teaching things that align with the doctrinal statement of the denomination that we're all a part of. And he was unafraid. 
And so he just, sat, he just sat there and went after them. And he said, I'm the only one at this table that believes the doctrinal statement. All of you should be under advice. All of you should be the ones that are, uh, that are being attacked, not me. Let's bring the denomination in here. Let's bring all of them in here. Let's have this conversation right now. So he was unafraid of those people. That's the first place I saw it. Second place I've seen it now is in Arizona where um, some, some churches that used to be pretty solid, one in particular used to be really solid, um, their, their main guy got wrapped up in social justice ideology. And this church... He was, the, he was kind of the head of this family of 10 churches that had somewhere around six to 10,000 people going to these nine churches. Well, he got in, infected by social justice ideology and then it became, you're either with us or you're against us. And so completely turned this entire family of churches uh, towards social justice. Well, they had a massive exodus of people. Massive. There's one church that was at 6,000 people that I was just told recently is now at 600 people. So they lost thousands of people over social justice. But what happens? He becomes a martyr for the cause. He was willing to sacrifice this white Trumpist church on the altar of social justice. And he's a hero to that group. He's a martyr for the cause. And so has he lost his position for totally damaging this church? It's been around for 30 years. No, not at all. He's, he's still promoted. He's still the man. And so I, I, I've, and, and not only that, I know the guy. I know the, the leaders of this group. I know them. And they are, they are so angry at me for taking a hard stand against social justice. Because what happened is people at their church went, oh, wait, I'll be safe there. I'll be safe at that church. My goal was to protect the people of Redeemer from their ideology. Well, the people of Redeemer knew people at that church and went, you need to come here because you're going to be safe here. And people started coming in droves. And what would we do? We would send them back to their church, say, you need to talk to your leaders and tell them why you are leaving and see if they will repent. None of that. It was consistent. None of them repented. The problem is you. We're not doing anything wrong. Everything we're doing is in line with the gospel. So we've seen it both in the academic world and in the church world. Wow. And so one thing that we've seen, though, is that a lot of the people like what you were just speaking about that were part of the social justice movement where it was either you join or you're out right? Here's the new old boys club, if you will, right? That's been started. And then all of a sudden, when just about everybody here that's on the stage was part of trying to make sure that we exposed what was going on with that, there was a little bit of a period of time, about a year, where it seems like a lot of people changed their gears. Then all of a sudden, we had people that were previously the leaders in the social justice movement, or part of it in a big way, now became transitioning into the Christian nationalist side of things. Uh, have you guys noticed that? Is it okay to say names? Yeah. So, um, yeah, like Albert Muller, um, president of the seminary that I attended for my MDiv, um, it's the flagship school of Southern Baptist Convention, um, biggest seminary in the world, I think, and um, also the one of the two or three intellectual centers for the social justice woke movement within the SBC. They, they still employ Jarvis Williams, who is one of the most aggressive, outspoken, pro-CRT professors in the denomination. And um, then suddenly, with, with the shift in the wind, which by the way, I talk about this in my book, it's in the back, you're welcome to uh, grab one from back there. Um, as the, the winds have shifted, um, so Albert Moeller has shifted as well, or as they call him, Weathervane Al, has shifted with the winds. So now he's coming out speaking at NatCon, which is a quasi-Christian nationalist conference. Ecumenical um, yeah. yes. And, and, and then identifying with the term, saying, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian nationalist. And so he's shifted, but now he's not so confident about that term in a, in a you, you see, I, I would say that I'm not sure if he's ever said, I am a Christian nationalist. He says, we need to talk about Christian nationalism, but he never said I was because he gave himself enough room to, you know, yeah. navigate. But nevertheless, speaking but, at that conference, right. which is indicating that he's pro that side. Um, so that's, that's what I've seen. Um, and I'm sure it's happening in other places too. 
Mm. And so uh, one other person, I guess, would be Aaron Wren, who was at one time associated with Tim Keller in New York City. And now all of a sudden is, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so Aaron Wren um, still is a big fan of Tim Keller. Um, he has been working very hard to rebrand Tim Keller's legacy from being this uh, progressive, left-leaning, left-pushing guy to um, now working with this paradigm that he has invented of, of uh, hostile world, neutral world, and or positive, neutral, and hostile world. So now he says, back in a certain generation, uh, the world was positive towards Christianity. And then in the decades that followed, it was neutral towards Christianity. And that's when Keller was most useful. Mm. But in a post-2015, post-Obergefeller uh, era, now we're in a negative world. And so now Tim Keller's, well, he's not as useful for us in speaking into this climate. And I would say, well, no, actually that's the wrong paradigm. And it's men like Tim Keller that created the hostile world that we're in today. Imagine if for 30 years Tim Keller was preaching in New York City in a bold, courageous, biblically faithful, confessionally faithful way, actually preaching and standing with his doctrinal statement, and those thousands of people in his church were actually being held accountable as members of the church, held accountable to their confession, and then going in, into their workplaces where they are, and striving to be faithful to the doctrines that they supposedly believe, this would be an entirely different New York City than what we have today. But instead, we've had 30 years of this progressive drift and accommodation and telling people, oh no, I don't, I don't preach about um, abortion here in my church. You're, you're welcome to, to be pro-abortion here. Like, it, it's fine, we're not gonna, anyway. It's, it's this whole thing. And then Aaron Wren has been like rebranding Tim Keller's legacy and now one of the leaders of Christian nationalism. Were you going to say something, John? Well, yeah, Mike. Um, as we've talked about social justice, I remember the three of us were doing a Q&A uh, in Arizona. Right, yes. And what struck me was that friendship, politics, um, the good old boy network, um, trumps doctrinal statements. And that's, that's, that I think is the most difficult part for me because the Bible is clear that when there is a deviation, you are to call it out. You are to separate from it. You are to keep it, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So you have to cut the leaven out to protect the batch, to protect the church. And what, I, and, and what it sounds like and what you've affirmed to me is that no, actually, John, there's something that trumps the doctrinal statements, and yeah. it's it's the pol it's the political games, it's the yeah. it's the good old boy network. Can you speak to that? Because you've seen it firsthand. All the rest of us, we kind of observe it from the outside. You've seen it from the inside. Well, I, I think, and, and this isn't something that's just with the Southern Baptist Convention. This is throughout evangelicals, evangelicalism as well. Uh, I started using the, the term reformed mafia back in, uh, I think it was 2000 or 2001. But we've been involved with trying to create uh, conventions, events, debates. Uh, there's another person who's sitting in the front row here, Theo Benitez, who helped with a lot of those things. Um, but we've been doing that for over, I think, 25 years now. But what you saw, especially as we started to work with many of the other ministries, is that um, you had to make sure that you were in line with what others were saying, doing, funding, et cetera, as well as making sure that you're part of the right sources of funding. Um, and that anybody who spoke against or had a disagreement or whatever else, they were outside of the club, basically. Uh, but then as well, when this thing came in um, many years ago, uh, I think with most of folks in evangelicalism, when the money came in for the movement, as I was explaining about today, that was sourced uh, with uh, the World Economic Forum and others that are attached to that and other funding resources, um, you know, through, through Lippo Group and others, when that started coming in, that was again the glue. So it was the funders that were encouraging you to move in the direction of um, radical subjectivity, of social justice, of postmodernism, and so forth, to adopt these things and help to transition the church. Basically, what you were doing, you were watching the death of the old church and the old evangelicalism and the birth of a new church with new evangelicalism with a critical consciousness. 
So that happened uh, over many years, and finally, it, I mean, I guess I just decided to start speaking up about it and trying to convince others to speak up about it, uh, which was hard. And so what we basically had to do, there was maybe me and one or two other people that cleared the minefields, and I think as soon as everybody felt like the, the minefield was cleared, then, and as well that there was an opportunity to profit off of it, uh, is that then they started marching through as well and declaring how courageous they were, you know. So <laughs> after we've lost limbs and, and business and everything else. But then the church basically adopted this anti-CRT stance. It's almost, I think, as James Lindsay reported, uh, had stated a few years ago, is it was going to become the new abortion. And what he meant by that was it's the thing that we all can be against but do nothing about, if you know what I mean. And so... Uh, Basically, the same people that were involved in bringing all of that into the church are still in their institutions. That hasn't changed. Now you just start to change what it is that you're about. Um, so I, I guess I would, I would ask um, Pastor John, um, you know, you've, you've stayed out of this now for, my gosh, uh, how many years, maybe almost 20 years out of that nonsense and out of those games, what was it that you made resolute in your mind to stay out of that whole thing? Well, I, I simply focused on what God had called me to do in my local church ministry, uh, and I just didn't pay much attention to what was going on up, up on the big hill mm -hmm. with the light. And so I had plenty of work to do in, on my own church field uh, without having to get involved in all, of the, uh, in all of the hubbub that might be going on at a, at a convention level. And, and, you know, I was a much happier person uh, because I wasn't involved in all of that and actually began enjoying pastoral work more than ever before. And, you know, it's easy to get caught up in climbing an ecclesiastical ladder. Mm. Uh, and I have to admit, I was climbing that ecclesiastical ladder. Yeah. And at uh, a particular point in time, I had to make a decision about taking a personal stand uh, about a biblical, biblical conviction uh, that I thought was more important than pleasing whoever may, may be higher up. Uh, and so for me, that actually brought a conclusion to my involvement in the higher going zone in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, but that was all right with me. I've got plenty to do. I've got folks who love me. And uh, we're seeing a lot of wonderful things happen here. And so I am quite, not, not just contented, I'm excited about what God is doing here uh, but that doesn't mean that somewhere down the line, some real changes mm. might have to be approached and made. Mm. Amen. Did I just knock down my, my tea? Oh, goodness, I'm sorry. I'll pay for that cleaning. Um, one of the things that uh, I know that we've just experienced within the last four months or so is uh, James Lindsay and I were actually at an event together in Virginia. And uh, a major evangelical organizational leader had approached me about the discussion of Christian nationalism and basically told me uh, it's not a good idea to continue to oppose this and that there's a lot of big fish that are involved in this to make it work. My response to him was, well, I guess I'm Ahab. And, uh, but it was within, within just days after that that some rumor and lie and so forth was spread to some people that were very close to me and I know where the source was. So those are the kinds of things that will happen. They'll try to destroy you reputationally within your friends and the people that you're loyal to in organizations and so forth. It won't just be what happens out here, but it'll happen internally as well to destroy trust and so forth. And have, have any of you experienced anything like that in the last four or five years with social justice and now this, this other thing? Anybody? <laughs> Jay, you don't have to name names, but oh, I didn't name a name. Can I? <laughs> you can if you'd like. I mean, that's been my whole experience. Um, I really resonated when John was giving his talk. So for those of you who are not aware, I am the only non-Christian on, I'm supposed to call it a stage. That's a debate right now. Right. I'm not supposed to be in a pulpit. It's a stage. I'm the only non-Christian up here. And so I have this kind of outside perspective watching. And when John was saying, you know, in his remarks, 
earlier, I guess we call these a message. I'm trying to pick up the lingo and fit in. When he was giving his message earlier and he said that uh, people from the outside are looking on at what the church says, oh, well, you guys are the same as me. What do I, you have to bring? I have a much more <laughs> unhappy view from the outside. It's much closer to why the hell would I get involved with you people? All you do is stab each other in the back and fight with each other. Um, it's exactly the same as the woke. It's, it's the most cutthroat. You bring some people in. You know, this is what the woke did. I told the story before at a different thing you and I did together about how critical race theory actually started within critical legal theory. And they lobbied and lobbied and lobbied and lobbied and finally got a, a, a panel together at one of these conferences and they let them have this and I think it's 1985 or 6 and they let them have it and these you know uh, critical race theorists before that was called critical race theory uh, sat up on the stage and just accused the entire critical legal theory movement which is already super left super progressive of being racist and the whole thing split into pieces then after that every single thing that happened had to have a critical race contingent present and they just kept playing this game again and again and again and they made themselves a new club and took over the whole program um, the same thing happened I came I was rather uh, embarrassingly now to say this involved in the new atheism movement at the beginning of the 2010s and the reason that I saw when Mike first told me about resolution 9 with the Southern Baptist Convention bringing CRT and intersectionality into the to the Southern Baptist Convention, he said, what do you think of this? I said, well, it's Trojan horse. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Somebody's going to say this, this is what's going to go down. And it wasn't because I had some special insight or a crystal ball or anything like this, because this is just the playbook. And it rolled out one piece after another after another in the circles I was running in. It started with a bunch of feminists. They'd say, we have to come to the conference or you're sexist. And then you bring them to the conference. They don't do anything but cause problems. Half the people there get labeled sexist for something they did. A guy asked a girl out in the elevator. Apparently, you're never supposed to do that. She said no. He left her alone. That's a big no-no, apparently, in feminist land. She made a big stink of it. Richard Dawkins, for whatever genius reason he had, made fun of it, turned into the biggest story on that side of the world. And the whole thing, within a few years, was dead. And I just watched this whole thing play out. It's the exact same dynamics. You get these kind of people who have a very hardline stance, and if you're not with us, you're the enemy. And then they create these dynamics. They, they stab each other in the back. They spread rumors. Holy cow, the stories that I've heard about myself. I'm yes. a lot more right. wild and adventurous in the, in the mythology about me than in truth. Um, I'm even friends with Christian nationalists, according to my Wikipedia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah apparently I'm a Christian nationalist. This uh, is Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, Media Matters, and so forth have called me that. Yeah, so he's Wikipedia. that according to the left, and I'm friends with him, and then the Christian, I don't even know. But what I've noticed is that I was gaining, in particular with our issue, I was gaining a lot of momentum in these years between, say, 2019, when we sat on the roof, rooftop together in New York City, and we put out that video and enlightened a lot of people about yes. CRT and about yes. what was going on with Woke. And I started laughing when you were talking about that, about people making profit. There's an awful lot of books out there that cite me an awful lot of times that have authors that are now on the internet saying, don't learn from atheists. Right. <laughs> who are talking about me, and they hold up, learn from this book instead, which cites me something like 38 times. And it's sort of amusing for me, but I've watched these people become, hey, wow, James, wow, great, yeah, I can't wait to learn from you. Oh, I learned everything I know from James, going around bragging about it. Turn around a year later, and I'm the worst thing that's ever been. I'm terrible. Nobody should listen to me. Just throw me straight under the bus, but it's because I didn't go along with their program. And it's the same dynamics. It's the same thing. It's the same totalitarian bid. Um, and it's the same entryism and infiltration of the institutions. And so we can go through the playbook. It would be not that hard to lay out how this is all going to play out, except that this one's probably going to blow up instead of take over. Right. And if you remember the, the first time that we actually talked about what was happening with critical race theory and social justice within uh, Christianity as well as just everywhere, I had told you, I think back then, the big thing that's going to happen is when you have Christian nationalism that comes. So we, we spoke about that at the same time that we first met many, many years ago. And it's the same thing that I spoke to about all the other pastors that I've been telling about this. But for some reason, I guess the draw, for whatever reasons, has been too great to pull them into this movement. And then all of a sudden, when James came against that, he became problematic, if you will. Yeah, I became really problematic. And they, it, I mean, maybe it's a coincidence in the timing, but they had kind of started to rev up. And you can tell, I can remember these things, because if you don't know my behavior on social media, which is sort of um, 
uncouth. Uh, one of the things that I do on Twitter is that I change my name on Twitter to be reflective of things that names people are calling me. I kind of wear them like armor or something. Right. And so the Christian Nationalist crew had just started to kind of ramp up on Twitter. I guess it must have been in uh, July or August yeah, or something of, of last summer. And I know that that was the case because when I got kicked off Twitter at the beginning of August last summer, um, my name that I had left on on Twitter was, it's always James Lindsay comma something that they're saying about me. And it was James Lindsay comma America's top Christian nationalist I had called myself because they were going after me and I was making fun of them. And so it stayed that way for four months while I was kicked off of Twitter. Um, this is... This is when they went absolutely hog wild. I was off Twitter. You were, I think, in Europe or something. Yes. You were on a boat or something for like right. forever. And there's no Wi-Fi on the boat. And so he does cruise things for his other business. It's, a, it's not like he's just sailing. <laughs> he is Ahab. I mean, that's what he said. But uh, they went hog wild when all of a sudden you know, the handful of us that were calling it out with big accounts kind of went away. And I'm not sure if that's coincidence. I'm not sure if that's uh, taking advantage of, you know, the parents leave town. It's time for the teenagers to have a party. You know, somebody set fire to the carpet. Oops. You know, that kind of a thing. But um, that it was an interesting timing at any rate. And it's just kind of gone, gone wild since then. When I came back to Twitter, the left was not happy that I came back to Twitter. And so they put me through the most vicious and vigorous struggle session I think I've ever been put through. They usually burn out if they're online just from personal, lots of personal experience in about three to four days. Well, this one carried on for weeks. In fact, as a matter, this would have been, I guess, what, in, in October? When did he let me back on? November. It was after we got back from London. So November, I got back on. I still, every single day, see the struggle session. They still are kind of like doing this trickling remnant. I had this one picture of me that I took with a lady at a conference one time posted to try to shame me over 100,000 times in two weeks to try to embarrass me. And then lo and behold, who else was posting it besides angry communists on the internet? The Christian nationalists. It was really weird. I was like, wow, these Christian guys I thought were my friends are posting that picture and making fun of me. What in the world's going on? And so again, I kind of circle back though. When I look on kind of from the outside and I see these kind of political games, it, it's as an outsider, it's really, really hard until I sit down in real life with folks like these to understand why anybody would want to be Christian. It's extremely frustrating to watch how, I told you the other day, or not the other day, it's weeks ago when they were really flared up at one point struggle sessioning us again. And I said, I just have no patience for this. I just cannot figure it out. It got so bad that I thought, I just can't, I couldn't, I can't ever. I said, it, what did I say? I said, if I ever become a Christian, not a single person on this earth will ever hear about it. I won't tell anybody. No one will know. So let's go down the line here, starting with Bill. What can you do as a Christian or as a pastor of a church, and just we're going to go all the way down the line here, um, to protect your flock from these things while still being a witness to those? And we've been talking about building a bridge to people to hopefully allow them to cross over from this extreme that they've been involved with. What, what can you do, maybe just in a minute, guys, and we'll go through each one of us and then we'll close. I think one of the top things a pastor can do in his local church is equip them. And I know that sounds cliche, but in a world in which we see cancel culture and the fear to actually open our mouth and name names and call out issues, that is something that we have seen as essential for the health of a local congregation. We are to teach our people, train them in righteousness, give them the discernment to see biblically what's going on. So I think that's one of the key issues that need to be done. I think another aspect of it is, is that you need to be willing to not only say it in your pulpit, but to disciple people within your church. Literally, be a pastor to these individuals. Realize that it may take hard work and effort to get them from where they're at to where they need to be, but that's part of your calling in the 21st century. We are battling these ideologies, they take time to understand, and that's some of the best ways that we can equip people from both the pulpit and through practical discipleship with other individuals. Pastor John? Well, first, James, the first time I heard you say, why would I ever, oh, no, it was, and you guys want me to join that 
talking about Christianity. I'll never forget it because it was a dagger in my soul when I heard you say that because I know that's not the Christ that died for our sins. That's not the standard that he expects from his people. And I said it today, like he, he said, the way that you treat each other is going to be a test for non-Christians as to whether or not you are legit. He said it in John 13, 30, 13, 34, and 35. He says it again, John 17, 23. And it grieves me deeply that that's what you've seen because it is, it's conduct unbecoming of Christians. And I've said to you before, I wish there was a way for me to apologize on behalf of Christianity for that because it is a horrible witness to you personally. Now to answer your question, Mike. Um, I think it's three things. People need and pastors need to be, number one, clear. They need to understand these issues so well that they can clearly explain it so that the everyday person can get it. They need clarity. They need conviction. They have to understand that these things are not equal to in-house debates this is an attack on Christianity itself. This is an opposing religion that is seeking to overcome and defeat everything, to bring in an eschaton to dis by destroying everything in its path, including Christianity. So we need conviction, clarity, and we need courage. What People. about building the bridge to, the, uh, to those that have crossed over into this stuff? I think that if you, because I've watched it, if you are clear and you have conviction and you are courageous, the people on the other side see that and it plants seeds. And at the same time, that whole movement preaches love, preaches tolerance, preaches acceptance. But if you're in that movement and you deviate just slightly, you feel wrath. We can be the opposite. We are to be the opposite of that. We are to be the place where people who disagree will be loved, will be cared for. People who hate us and want us dead will hear about a God who loves them and will save them from their sin. They need to hear us praying for them. We will be the, we, we have everything in our Bible gives us the correct reaction to their action. But if we're worldly, like I said before, if, we're, if we fight on the world's terms with the world's weapons, we are going to lose. Right. Yeah, I'd say like in the Christian national side within the last few weeks, and I know Andy got into a conflict with, with Joel Webin and, and some others, is that I have seen Joel respond in the right way. Um, you know, and, and I know there's still conflict there, but I, I've, I've seen at least I'm encouraged by that. James, you want to give us your input and then we'll go to John? Yeah, and just to respond to you, John, first, um, it's been men like like I share the, the stage with presently that have made me be able to pull back and remember. So thank you very much. Pull back and remember that I, you know, I've read the gospel too and I realize that their representation is poor. Uh, and so it's been very helpful to have actual examples of that. So I appreciate you very much for that. As far as how to build the bridge, that's actually, I, don't, I think this is almost, I apologize, Mike, but it's almost a silly question. When, when I think of Christianity, sort of the first thing I think of is, wow, that's where, you know, forgiveness for people who messed up, that's basically on brand as far as it can be. So being a landing pad for people who have made these mistakes, whether they've fallen into woke, whether they've fallen into Christianity, uh, Christian nationalism, I mean, to give them the opportunity to say, you know what, everybody makes mistakes, everybody gets caught up in things, and we're here to help you understand what happened, we're here to help you move forward, yes. no big deal, you know, and you can work it out between you and and Jesus, says, or however, it's between you and God, that, that's your your thing, that's your bread and butter. Now, I think if you if I might take an extra minute here, what what pastors in general and, and religious people more broadly, Christians more broadly, need to be thinking about a lot is, is I said this about the trans thing the other day in the, the uh, little panel we did, we have to understand the reason why 
people are being drawn to Christian nationalism. You have to be able to speak to that reason. It's not just enough to be clear and courageous. We have to understand what's luring them there. Who wants to control other people? Desperate people, fearful people, people who are terrified and despairing, people who think, as Doug Wilson said, that the floor joists have rotted out. If that's what they truly believe, these people need a message of hope. They need a message that resonates. For example, if I might remark on Scripture, they need some solid sermons coming out of Hebrews 11, talking about what faith really looks like, faith not just in God but also in the promises of this country. They need to be reminded of that. They need to, you know, they come to me, people say, no, we've already lost, James, we've already lost, it's too late, it's too late for that, the Constitution's a failed document, and then they're looking me in the face, and I know they're a Christian, I'm like, why do you doubt God's timing? Have you not read your book of Esther for such a time as this? isn't, Isn't this you? Isn't this your time? Why are you going into despair and looking for desperate measures that are likely to fail or hand victory to your enemy when there's hope, when there's faith, when there's all of these virtues and values that Christianity teaches? So I think messages along those lines that remind people that all is not lost, that hope is there, that we can trust in the promises of this nation and of their faith These are going to be crucial to help bringing those people back and getting them back out of that despair, out of that fear, out of that belief that the floor joists have rotted out and that it's all is lost unless we do something desperate and have a whole new founding all over again. I think that's absolutely key. Pastor John. I know a lot of Christians who don't speak like that. Hey, hey James, tell, tell... Pastor John, what you told me right after he was done speaking. You're going to have to help me here. That was like 30 minutes ago. (laughs) I think I've slept three times since then. (laughs) So when, when, when we were in the back break room and I, you know, I asked you what you thought of, of his sermon and you said, you know, you're sending things to your wife and you said something about John. You said, Hey, if just prime me, man. <laughs> well, I think you said... You made you me know, get up at said, 6 this morning. Prime me. <laughs> said, I would come for that. Oh, yeah, that's what I said. I would come for that. I, I, I don't go to a lot of churches. I would show up to listen to this kind of preaching. I would show up to listen to this. Well, I told James on Wednesday night that uh, he is closer to the kingdom than he realizes. And uh, it hasn't happened yet. I believe it's going to happen. I I believe that with all my heart. Uh, He and I say a lot of the same things. Uh, We may be coming from a little bit different space, but we really have a a camaraderie that I think is healthy. Uh, And it it is also good to engage with people outside Christianity. Yes. Uh, and we are never going to win the world if we do not engage the world in some form or some fashion. Now, my goal as a pastor is simply to preach the truth of God's word book by book. Right now, we are going through James on Sunday morning. We are going through Hebrews on Wednesday night. I don't ever set out to say, all right, I'm going to address this particular social issue. You just preach the word and you discover that that word is already addressing these issues. So I don't pick on people. I don't just, okay, I want to get after this group this week and I want to get after another group next week. I preach whatever is next in the word and amazingly it is applicable to what's going on in life today. So stay in the word, preach the word. The word of God is living, it is active, it is powerful, it cuts deep. And when we preach it that way, believe it that way, God is actively involved. And look, lives are changed. Amen. So I, so I don't plan on changing a thing. Amen. Amen. Well, one thing I just, I could add to that is that you have to speak the truth about what's happening now, about what, in what ways, as, as John was saying about those that have infiltrated, as James and I have kind of gone out way out in front of things, but when you start to get on the speaking circuit or you start to have contributions to your organization or whatever, then all of a sudden, after they've been doing that for a while, they say, well, if you, um, if you continue to do what you're saying against this group or against us, then maybe some of those things will start to go away. We just say, 
I'm just going to continue. Hey, it's nothing personal against you, but we need to talk about these things. So there's people that are involved in movements, and then there are people that just have something that you disagree with them in. So it's those that are involved in movements that are trying to change everything that sometimes end up being the issue. But you, the thing is you always do need to make sure that there is a bridge back. You know, saying even those that I would, I would be very critical of right now. I mean, I, I'd love to see someone like Klaus Schwab have a, a realization that he's, in, you know, he's a horrible sinner as all of us have been. I, mean, I was the chief of all sinners and that there is a savior. You know, I would love to see people that are involved in some of these movements come out of them and realize that what they're doing is in vain, that they are destroying lives, they're destroying their nation, they're destroying Christianity and fracturing it about, and if that's what you enjoy doing, or that's what you wanna be a part of, God's not gonna think favorably upon that, and the thing is, other people are gonna to start to see that too. But I would say that the thing is, is that you love, you, you realize that, that there are gonna be people that sometimes you were even close to that are gonna separate from you for, for crazy reasons. And you just try to keep on going, you know, and you trust the Lord and you keep on moving. But then as well, surround yourself with other brothers that you can trust and you can confide in, confide in. And then as well, just be transparent with other people. I think that's the one thing I would say. Andy? Uh, there's a lot of things that could be said, but I agree and affirm the things that have been said, um, especially uh, really resonate with John's words towards uh, James. Um, if I could apologize on behalf of Christian jerks on Twitter, I, I, I would. Um, unfortunately, I don't believe in corporate guilt like that. Um, but I'm sorry that they did those things to you. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, just on the theme of my message from this morning, don't, don't be discouraged when you find yourself with uh, bad odds or, or small numbers. Um, the Lord loves to, to take the weak things to confound the mighty. Um, and so I guess I'll just uh, conclude by reading the words of the word of the Lord from Joshua chapter one, verse uh, nine. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Thank you folks for sticking with us and we'll look forward to see, and just thank the panel, would you please, for their wisdom. We will see you back at 7.30 with Dr. James Lindsay. Thank you.